Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, May 18th, 2010. I might actually get to play my Monster Mash music today. It has been a long time since I've been able to do that. The details uh, coming. You know, the, the irony here is that I sound excited. I really should be upset. <laughs> ah. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and really to point you to Jesus Christ and Him crucified for all of your sins. We're really all about proclaiming the gospel, the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and that now that our salvation has been won on the cross by Christ's penal substitutionary vicarious atonement. That's right. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Uh, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. That's the good news we want to get to and continue to proclaim. And uh, really kind of expose the fact that there is a well <clears throat> there are many folks out there who occupy christian pulpits are putting together so-called christian uh television shows writing so-called christian books and the stuff that they're promoting and speaking about god well it just isn't true and you think well that's awful arrogant of you to say that yeah i know that's because i can read yeah, it's really that simple. You read, and when somebody makes a statement that contradicts God's word, you say, liar, <coughs> not true. <coughs> uh, or if somebody makes a statement that isn't found in Scripture, they're just winging it, you also go, <coughs> liar, you know, and you basically say that they're not speaking the truth. Plain and simple. We would know practically nothing about God. And now that's not to say that there isn't things that we could know about God from nature, but we would know practically nothing about him if it weren't for the fact that he has revealed stuff about himself in his word. And uh, you want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus Christ. That's ultimate, the ultimate uh, picture of what God is like and about. 
And uh, But the thing is, is that his word is chock full of accurate and true data regarding him and his character, uh, what he expects of us, and what he has done for us. And when people stand behind a pulpit or on stage, if they're purpose-driven types, and claim to be speaking on behalf of the God of the Bible, what comes out of their mouth had better jive with Scripture. Because if it doesn't, then they're really they are fulfilling the role or in the in the role of a false prophet. They're not telling you the truth. And some errors, let's just say they're damnable heresies in the fact that they damn those who teach them and damn those who believe them. So uh, we take this stuff seriously and we don't pull any punches. We call things what they are. And as a result of it, this program is completely politically incorrect. And uh, people, <laughs> I've seen critiques of me to the effect of that I'm some kind of a dinosaur from the past, the last of a dying breed. Yeah, and I basically say, no, I'm not the last of a dying breed because Jesus is greater than your heresies. And there will always be Christians on the earth up until the day when Christ returns. And so I don't, I, I listen, I, I'm not the last of anything. <laughs> I, and uh, Christianity is not doomed or done for because Jesus Christ is greater than all these heretics. So what do we do here? We compare what people say in the name of God to the word of God. And uh, we praise the good and we, uh, well, we hold out for chastisement and rebuke that stuff that's bad. So just want to let you know that's what we do here. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way and uh, don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, and by the way, this whole idea about comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God, that goes for me too. I am not exempt whatsoever. I'm a sinful human being and capable of, of, of egregious errors. And so if I say something that's contrary to God's word, feel free to email me and let me know. Uh, you actually get extra pirate Christian radio points. You can't redeem them for anything, but you get extra points when you do that. All right. Uh, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. <sighs> okay. We got a story. There's a poll out there. <laughs> Get this, U.S. morality is getting worse, you think? Anyway, we'll take a look at that story. And then uh, we've got a story from The Guardian in the U.K. about Pete Rollins. Pete Rollins, I had a chance to meet him. He's a, he's an Irish philosopher, if you would, from the emergent camp. He likes uh, Hegel. He likes uh, Feuerbach. And uh, I think he likes Heidegger, too. At least that's what he told me when I ta had a chat with him. And so they've uh, written a, a piece up in The Guardian in the U.K. about him entitled A New Recipe for Christianity, as if you could even do that. But, I mean, it kind of shows you, you know, just the name of the article really kind of clues you in as to what's going on. Because remember that Jesus' brother, this would be Jude, who wrote the epistle in, named after him, Jude, uh, made it clear that we're to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There are no new recipes for Christianity. I mean, you, you remember, how many years ago was this? Remember that failed experiment when they got rid of Coke, Coca-Cola, and they came up with a new recipe for Coca-Cola, Coke, new Coke, and oh boy, that was that a mess. And, anyway... Christianity is it doesn't have a recipe that can be messed with. You can't you you change the rest the ingredients in Christianity and you cease to have Christianity. You might have something that's religious and you might have 
um, well, you might have sprinkles of Jesus-ish tasting things in there, but your recipe ain't Christianity. But we'll get to that in, in, in a little bit here. And then, as I said at the opening of the program today, I might get to play the Monster Mash. <laughs> You're going, huh? Now, those of you who've been listening to the program for a while know exactly what I'm talking about. We did a segment early on when this uh, program was first getting up and running. Uh, Patricia King and uh, one of her followers, were they have a um, ministry f- <laughs> for raising the dead. And uh, so Patricia King and um, James Gall have a, a, a two videos, two of them. It's a two-parter uh, on, <laughs> on raising the dead. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I had thought that she had given up, you know, that the complete lunacy stuff that she had been doing earlier. But apparently she's taken a turn for the worse. And uh, and then we have a good sermon today. Uh, now, here's the interesting thing about this sermon. I want to tell you about it ahead of time. I'll remind you when we get into the second hour. Uh, the sermon is by Phil Johnson. It was preached a couple weeks ago, and it's named The Foolishness of Preaching the Gospel. And the reason I am playing this sermon is is actually there are multiple reasons. One, Phil Johnson, I consider him to be a, a friend, a, a good a acquaintance. I've spoken with him a few times. And uh, just I consider him to be a solid biblical preacher and a man of God and somebody who understands the gospel, proclaims the gospel, understands the importance of the gospel. And and as a result of it, this sermon, you know, I, I Phil Johnson's one of the guys I listen to. I just I'll be blunt. I'm a fan. OK, and he helps keep me sane. And now I understand he's a Calvinist. I'm a Lutheran. So when he preaches on Calvinistic topics, I tune out and, and go, yeah, well, I don't see that. But aside from that, <laughs> well, there's certain things. Let me put it this way. There's a lot of common ground between Lutheranism and Calvinism, and then there's a lot of ground that that's like um, uh, contested. You know, we've, we've drawn trenches, and we've got soldiers firing at each other from other sides of the trenches. I don't think the, the – uh, the, the shooting at Calvinists is a very important thing to do, especially in light of uh, the fact that we've got more important fish to fry right now. Uh, but I do consider uh, Phil Johnson to be a brother in Christ. And I just like a true Calvinist, I consider him to be brothers in Christ. And the reality is, is that my attitude on this is that, you know, when it comes to the five points of Calvinism, we can argue about it when we get to heaven. Okay. Until then, we've got more important stuff to do, and I, I, I love uh, Phil Johnson, and so uh, th- this is one of those sermons where I thought it would be a good juxtaposition. Now, here's the other reason I'm, I, I picked it. Yesterday, we played a Perry Noble sermon. Oh, and by the way, in case you haven't heard, Perry Noble has declined to uh, de- uh, to meet me in a sermon cage fight, and you know I understand why he would be afraid to do that. Because it, it's obvious that I would just destroy him. Uh, it, I mean, it wouldn't even be close. I mean, he doesn't even stand a chance. I mean, he's such a Bible twister and completely missed the point of, of, uh, of you know, of how to actually handle the Word of God. That, um, well, y- you know, you get what I'm saying. I mean, it makes sense that he would not face me in a sermon cage fight. But uh, anyway, uh, yesterday's sermon from Perry Noble. Perry did a lot of talking about himself, and um, now. <laughs> what you're going to find in the sermon that I'm going to play by Phil Johnson is, is that Phil Johnson is going to do a lot of talking about himself. But the contrast couldn't be 
sharper. Uh, Perry Noble, when he talks about himself, seems to hold himself up as well. The example of what it is that he's trying to get everyone else to do. Phil Johnson, when he preaches the sermon, he'll spend quite a bit of time talking about himself. But he preaches about himself in such a way that you realize that uh, Phil Johnson is not holding himself up as a moral example. He's holding himself up as an example of a completely failed, miserable, and wretched sinner. And uh, and so, I mean, the contrast between Perry Noble and Phil Johnson, I mean, it, it's the difference of light versus darkness, good versus evil, truth versus error. And so I thought it would be a, a fantastic contrast just to, you know, to play back to back yesterday's sermon and then listen to, uh, to Phil Johnson, uh, yesterday Perry Noble, today Phil Johnson. And both sermons uh, have illustrations in them where the the men preaching it spend some time, quite a bit of time, talking about themselves. But again, in this particular case, you, you'll see what I'm saying when we get to the sermon review. So with that, uh, we're going to uh, dive into our program uh, proper, which means I need to cue up the vintage music here. From the uh, Christian Post, new poll shows that... <laughs> Uh, morality worsening in the United States. Yeah, really? <laughs> no, you you can't. <laughs> I I who pays for these polls? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they could have sent the money to me, and I would have told them. Anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> This is by Jennifer Riley from the Christian Post. Yeah, more Americans say U.S. morality is getting worse. Uh, <laughs> I'm serious. Who? Really? No. I, I had no idea. More Americans believe moral values in the United States are getting worse, according to a new Gallup poll. The Gallup uh, annual poll on moral values found that 76% of Americans said moral values in the country are getting worse, up to 5% from last year. This year's rise marked the second highest one-year increase in nine years. In 2004, 77% of Americans said moral values were getting worse, marking a 10 uh, a 10 percentage rise from the previous year. Opinions about moral values in the country tend to stay relatively stable between years. The highest figure was in 2007, and that was at 82%. Well, I mean, if... <sighs> So this year, we're not at 82%, but we're at 76%. I mean, three-quarters of the American people think that morality is getting worse. Respondents most often cited declining moral values and standards and disrespect of others. That's at 15% as ways that they see moral values in the U.S. getting worse. Open-ended questions also found popular responses to be parents not instilling values in their children. Uh-huh. Dishonesty among government, business leaders, you think, and rising crime and violence, no kidding. Uh, others said a moral value decline can be seen in people moving away from religion, church, and God, 7%, the breakdown of the family, and unwed mothers and sex, promiscuity, and pornography, 5%. But the hot-button issues of abortion and gay relations uh, were each only cited by 3% of the respondents. Overall, 45% of Americans said the state of moral values in the country is poor, three times more uh, than those who said it's in the excellent to good shape. This figure has uh, stayed relatively constant 
over the past four years, but is still among the worst Gallup has measured in the past nine years. The Gallup results are based on telephone interviews with more than uh, 1,029 National American adults uh, conducted on May from May 3rd to the 6th, 2010. So, listen, okay, got to put just point a couple of things out here. Number one, yes, morality is getting worse in the United States. It has been for quite a while. And it's not just in the U.S., it's around the world. Okay, what can we do about it? Okay, so, I mean, if the Gallup poll statistics are correct, then at least 76% of you listening to this edition of Fighting for the Faith agree that morality is getting worse in the United States. And if you don't live in the United States because this program is listened to all over the world, uh, then you might think that things are getting morally worse in your country too. What's the solution? Well, I can tell you this. The solution is not to post the Ten Commandments. Yeah, it's true. Um, it, it, the solution is not for people to go out there and, and, and get in a big fight with the American Civil Liberties Union about posting the Ten Commandments in, in a park somewhere. Yeah, like that's going to do anything. Or making sure that we have displays of, of the Ten Commandments or we make sure that there's a big cross on Signal Hill down in San Diego. I mean, the, that thing was stolen. Uh, that's not going to solve the problem either. What's see? Because here's the deal. Um, I hate to break this to you. Yesterday, I gave a shocking statistic here at Fighting for the Faith, and um, um, here was the statistic: one hundred percent of all people are going to die. Yeah, and the death rate is still one hundred percent. Can you believe that? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, if the death rate is a hundred percent, that means everybody going to die. Uh, that means that everybody is. Uh, sinner. Yeah, because the wages of sin is what? Death. Yeah, it's death. Um, so what's the solution here? I mean, we're all going to die. We're all sinners. We're all immoral. We're born sinners. We're born at war with God. We hate him. So what's the solution? Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, as Jesus told us to do. In case you're wondering where Jesus told us to do that, look at Luke chapter 24. Look somewhere around verses 45, 46, 47, somewhere in there. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Romans 10 tells us, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. You want to see... um. Uh, you you want to see this turned around? It's not by telling people, listen, you need to get more moral. You need to make better decisions. You need to try harder at being gooder. Yeah, that's going to just solve that, you know, clear that right up. Give everyone a good moral pep talk and tell them to pull themselves up by their moral bootstraps. <sighs> yeah, and, you know, and you parents out there, you make sure that you discipline your children and put, instill in them moral values. By the way, you should. Uh, but, but see, the thing is, is that... Um, keep the, keep in mind, snakes slither, mm -hmm. cows moo, giraffes have long necks and sinners sin. That's what we do. So, um, the solution to our moral problem is Christ 
regenerating us, us being born again, people being born again, that their heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, that they come to realize their sinful and wretched condition, that they have nothing to offer God, and that they are going to hell. The solution will not be found in legislating morality. It will not be found in the government engaging in wealth redistribution and social justice. That won't solve the problem either. This problem cannot be solved by Rick Warren's global peace plan. This problem cannot be solved by digging freshwater wells in Africa for starving uh, uh, native peoples there. This problem cannot be solved by any such programs, political endeavors, worldly wisdom. It cannot be solved by philosophy. It cannot be solved by mysticism. It cannot be solved by anything except for Jesus Christ and him granting repentance and the forgiveness of sins through the church doing what it was told to do, proclaiming law and gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Yeah, Forget the church programs. Forget the church growth methodologies. Forget all of this stupid, asinine, seeker-driven stuff. It won't make a hill of beans worth of difference. If you're not proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and bringing people to despair of their own goodness... And to see it for what it really is, filthy rags, and then giving them the only solution, and that's Christ and him crucified for your sins, then year after year after year, until Christ returns, uh, we will have poll results coming out from the Gallup organization, letting us know that our society continues to get morally worse. Yeah, the solution to slipping morals is not the law. It's it's the law and the gospel. Yeah, Moses to drive people to their knees. Jesus to lift their heads. Oh, Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand, the psalmist writes. But with you, there is forgiveness of sins. Therefore, you are feared. For it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance something to consider <sighs> all right what's what else do i have on deck here hang on a second here i dropped my program notes okay new recipe for christianity oh yeah pete rollins i met pete rollins he talks like an irishman and i do a really bad irish accent <laughs> I know those of you in Ireland are going, that stunk, right? Yeah, it did. <laughs> I met Pete Rollins at the uh, Emergent Conference. Nice guy. Absolutely f fascinating to talk to. And uh, and it's it's really interesting. You know, uh, I was explaining to him the, the project I'm working on uh, that's quickly becoming a dissertation. And... Um, and, uh, he, <laughs> uh, you, know, I, you know, by the way, I should tell you this. Tomorrow on the program, 
uh, I'm going to have Bob DeWay on, and we're going to talk about the real roots of the emergent church. It's not in postmodernity. It, it, it's in fact, the stuff is about a hundred years old, and we're going to talk. We're going to explain to you what this thing really is. Okay, and uh, so Bob and I will be talking about that. But I was sharing with Pete Rollins my uh, just a little bit about the research that I've been uncovering and where it's been leading me and the things I've been discovering about the philosophical roots and the historical parallels uh, of the emergent church to this other historical thing. We'll talk about that tomorrow. And, um, and, and you know, what was funny is I was explaining to him how the, the emergent church's historical parallel, that there's four ingredients to the cocktail that was brewed uh, in this historical parallel, and that's uh, evolutionary theory, uh, the Hegelian dialectic, existentialism, and uh, irrational philosophy, and um, I, you know, I basically pointed out to Pete. I said, you know, I think that's the role you're playing. You're playing the role of irrational philosopher in the emergent church. And he really didn't put up much of a fight to to counteract that. And he did he did say that there were people who uh, who critique him and say he's not really a theologian, but he's more of a philosopher. And he readily admitted that his philosoph- that he you know, philosophically he's been influenced by Hegel. By Feuerbach. Look up Feuerbach, by the way. If you're not familiar with Feuerbach, you need to look him up. As well as uh, Martin Heidegger. Martin Heidegger. We're going to be talking about Martin Heidegger tomorrow on the program a little bit more, but I just want you to uh, to know about that. Now, by way of uh, introduction to tomorrow's topic, my uh, discussion with Bob DeWay on this topic, um, I just I want to throw out a, um, a question for you. When we talk about the founding of the United States of America, one of the things, the recurring themes that comes up is the fact that um, there were political philosophers who had a profound influence on the founders of of the American uh, uh, of of the American country of of the United States of America, and we talk about Locke, we talk about Berkeley, we talk about even uh, men like James Whitfield. Um, so there, you know, when we talk about the American Revolution, we know that Franklin, Payne, that uh, that uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Madison. Uh, uh, Samuel Adams, all of these guys, they, they existed in a, in a very real, intelligent. Uh, basically, uh, there was a climate, a philosophical and intelligent climate, an academic climate of ideas that were floating around that inspired them to take the course of actions that they took, and to create to write the Constitution. Based, you know, a lot of the Constitution is based upon these political philosoph- philosophical ideas, okay? And we talk about who the fathers of the fathers are, or who the men, the f- political philosophers who influenced the American Revolution. Now, something I want you to ask yourself: when we talk about Nazi Germany. Why is it that at least how the story seems to be related to me constantly, not on television and other places, it's as if Adolf Hitler fell out of the sky 
that he was acting independently that maybe he was you know that he was kind of tapping into some of the cultural racism of germany at the time but but pretty much his idea his his ideas have no parents it's as if adolf hitler had no philosophical writers influencing him by the way historically that is not true adolf hitler just like george washington adolf hitler just like Benjamin Franklin, Adolf Hitler, just like Thomas Jefferson, had philosophers who were influencing him. And they were irrational philosophers, irrational philosophers. In fact, in uh, Ernst Nolte's book, The Three Faces of Fascism, uh, there's this f interesting quote here, and uh, let's see here. George, uh, George Lukacs, in his book, and I'm going to mess this up because I don't know German, Die Zerstörung der Vernunft. Here he attempts to describe philosophical irrationalism as an essential component and background to national socialism. National Socialism being the Nazi Party. So that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. Okay, Now, so I want you to keep this in mind. Pete Rollins is an irrational philosopher. No doubt about it. And one of the men who is, influences, who, who is a major influence of his, in fact, more than one, also was a political philosopher who I think is a profound influence upon the guys who created uh, not National Socialism. Okay? We'll talk about that tomorrow, so stay tuned for that. So before I, you know, tell you what, I'm, I'm up on my first break. When we come back, I'll read this uh, piece from The Guardian in the UK called A New Recipe for Christianity and uh, this stuff about Pete Rollins, and then we'll do, uh, the, we'll, we'll do the Patricia King segment because... <laughs> What would a week be like without us talking about Patricia King? So um, <laughs> if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. 
You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Padgett in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Thoughts and philosophies have consequences. Yeah, they do. We'll talk about this more tomorrow. 
Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website. It's fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew. The other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And when you join, you get access to our Pirate Cove, important stuff that's in there. Growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's word, a sound biblical doctrine, Christian apologetics, and also the place where I keep my program notes. If you would like to get links to the news stories and the stuff that I talk about here or the videos that I talk about here at Fighting for the Faith, uh, then you need to join the crew because that's where I'd be keeping all this stuff. That, that That's something new that we just started this week. So, uh, it, And, of course, if you would like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, uh, you know, a flat amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, uh, from the Garden of the UK, the uh, name of the story is A New Recipe for Christianity by Theo Hobson. Theo writes, he says, I went to hear a young Irishman called Pete Rollins give a talk about a, a, above a pub a few nights ago. In the world of edgy religious thought, he's a bit of a star. He's He has just been on a speaking tour of the States where he is based now. You can see him online, charming audiences with his storytelling style, he loves telling parables, jokes, like an, a young Irish Lionel Blue. Okay. His core message is that Christianity is a uniquely self-critical religion. It contains doubt and even atheism within itself. He deconstructs the religious structures we build in its name. Deconstructionism. Deconstructionism. Who started deconstructionism where does that come from okay it doesn't start in post modernity i know actually it is a product of the philosophy of a gentleman by the name of martin heidegger martin heidegger martin heidegger keep that name in mind and by the way martin heidegger's deconstructionist ideas they come to the United States through Paul DeMond, Falcall, Derrida. Any of these guys ring a bell to you? They should. You need to know who they are. So here we. So here, Pete Rollins he deconstructs the religious store, uh, structures we build in the name of Christianity. This, as he would happily admit, is not a new message. It has roots in mystical spirituality. <clears throat> and in the Protestant reading of Paul and in the Death of God movement of the 1960s. Okay, now who, Death of God movement, 1960s, who is that? J.J. Altizer, okay, from Emory University. You, If you want to uh, hear the debate where J.J. Altizer's Death of God stuff was soundly defeated, you need to look up John Warwick Montgomery's uh, debate with J.J. Uh, Altizer, okay? So... 
Listen to this. Uh, So this is, as he would happily admit, is not a new message. It has roots in mystical spirituality in the the Protestant reading of Paul and in the Death of God movement of the 1960s and certain certain postmodern thinkers, especially Derrida. Derrida, where did he get deconstructionism? From Martin Heidegger. Martin Heidegger. That's the guy who created it. You're not familiar with Martin Heidegger? Look him up on the internet. Google him. Start to understand what this guy is all about. Martin Heidegger's major themes are deconstruction, uh, time and being, community, authenticity. Does any of this stuff sound familiar? And Martin Heidegger, I think, is the political philosopher who had the most influence in helping Hitler rise to power. Keep that in mind. What is interesting about Rollins is that he is not satisfied just to sound off about this stuff and let the churches get on with doing religion while still a Ph.D. student. He set up a group in Belfast that tries to put such ideas into practice. How? By experimenting with homemade liturgies, by using poetry, song, and performances, and art to rethink religion. It's called Icon. It meets in a bar. Before his talk, I asked him what led him in this direction. He was brought up in a nominally Anglican family in Belfast. He says that, he says, and then age 17, he became a fervent charismatic while studying philosophy. His interest in religion changed completely. The atheism of Marx and Nietzsche did not lead him to atheism, but towards a new sort of faith that celebrates rather than shuns doubt. Uh huh. A new sort of, quote, faith that celebrates rather than shuns doubt. By the way, faith and doubt are polar opposites. How can you how can faith celebrate doubt? You have to get rid of rational thought before you can embrace that paradox. You have to get rid of the logical law of non-contradiction. Okay? That's only possible with the deconstructionist philosophies of Derrida, Foucault, and Paul Demon and going back to Heidegger. Most people of this bent would burrow down in academia, but Rollins wanted to find a way of communicating his ideas more widely. Along with a a few friends, he felt that a new cultural space was needed that allowed people to explore this, not just through clever chat, but through trying to find ways of ritually expressing it. Expressing what exactly? Does Icon basically affirm the Christian story? Quote, What we do is rooted in the Christian tradition, but it's critical of every religious formula. It's trying to get away from the distinction between Christian and non-Christian. Yeah, how, the distinction between Christian and non-Christian. We want to get away from that, apparently. The only way you can do that is by attacking rational thought. What is Pete Rollins' role? He is an irrational philosopher. Um, it's inspired by Paul's vision of a space beyond identity as Jew or Greek or male or female. That's a ridiculous reading of Paul there, by the way. The aim is a liturgical space in which all identity is left at the door so we can imagine the messianic vision of a time when we will all be equal. Notice you lose individual identity and we're all equal. Community is the big thing. Again, Heidegger. It is a form of church. No, we don't call it. Uh, is it a form of church? No, we don't call it that. Does the group do explicitly Christian ritual acts a form of of Eucharist? No, that's not something we've done. I, I think because there's such a weight of expectation around that ritual that people might find it problematic. Does he also go to a normal church? No, I don't. 
hmm, to my mind, Re- Rollins is raising the most interesting religious question of our day and then letting it slip away a bit. Uh, the question is whether Christian practice can be freed from its institutionalism and its orthodoxy. Can it ditch its authoritarian tendency and find a new postmodern likeness? On one hand, Rollins says yes and acts on it, but on the other hand, he is unwilling to claim that this new practice he advocates is Christian. It's also post-Christian, he seems to say. He backs off from saying that this is a Christian reform movement for fear of claiming to have the answer, which leaves old-fashioned Christianity redundant. This reticence is understandable, but maybe it it imports more postmodern question marks than are necessary. So there you go, uh, Pete Rollins. Uh, so that's kind of a teaser for tomorrow's program. We're going to be talking about Heidegger and what postmodernity really is uh, with Bob DeWay on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. You don't want to miss that. Okay, um, you know, it has been a long time since I've played this. I wonder if I even still have this. Uh, yeah, actually, I do. Here it is. <laughs> I can't believe I still have this. For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the match He did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash He did the match It caught on in a flash He did the match He did the monster match From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom now, those of you who've listened to the program for a while, then you know that this is the original music that I used to introduce Patricia King by. They did the match. They did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They did the match. It caught on in a flash. They did the match. They did the monster Now, you're probably wondering, why did I have this music for Patricia King? Well, because the first few segments we featured Patricia King on this program... She was doing werewolf ministry and um, raising the dead ministry. We were suggesting that she did some vampire ministry as well. I mean, in light of the Twilight movies and books, you know. Gordon chains back by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the match. They played the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They played the match. It caught on in a flash. They played the match. They played the monster match. Out. All right, I'm going to kill it right there. Oh, sorry, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, this um, segment uh, from Patricia King and James Gall is, well, part of a two-part series of videos about raising the dead. Uh, here's Patricia King and James Gall. Welcome to Extreme Prophetic. My name is Patricia King. James Gall is also with me. And we're going to be speaking today on the subject of raising the dead. That's um, right. There's uh, a commissioning for us in the scripture, James, to go and raise the dead. We get to do it that. It really is. And it wasn't just the word Jesus gave to those disciples at that period of time. It's for- uh, really, James. Uh, we're going to take a look at that passage to see if it really is a universal application passage for all Christians. You know, because 
I mean, don't you think if that was a normal part of Christianity that all Christians would already be doing this normally? For all time, as for us today. That's right. Anyone who is in Christ has the power to raise the dead. You know, just like in past movements where they, you know, healing the sick seems sort of like breaking the membrane, something Mm -hmm. new. And now it's becoming much more commonplace. Well, we're breaking the membrane right now for this generation on raising the dead. Really, uh, how many folks have you raised there, James? I mean, if you, I mean, since this is so normal, I mean, I'm sure you and Patricia will be parading on video all the people you've raised from the dead. You know, to how'd you put it? Break the membrane? Who? I remember a number of years ago, the Lord gave me a vision. I've had recurring visions since right. that time. Yeah, you might want to, you know, eat an orange before going to bed. Maybe it'll go away, Patricia. Of a revival of the raising of the dead. That's what I'm believing yeah, for. Yeah, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> Whew, yeah, that's what I'm believing for. Yeah, a revival of raising the dead. It's been way too long since we've had that happening. It's like, I mean, I can't share all that I've seen. (laughs) Oh, please do. It's just so entertaining when you do, Patricia. (laughs) That's a little bit risky right now. But but what I have seen is the body mobilized into action where people who are physically dead and not just not just people. We're talking about dreams and yeah, we're talking about oh, things, absolutely. you know, like all kinds of relationships are yes. dead. Oh, yeah. Dead dreams and dead relationships. You know, those <laughs> those dead dreams and dead relationships, they're much easier to raise from the dead than those dead people. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. Yeah, it, we're... Yeah, I'm raising the dead. It's not just dead people we're gonna we're gonna be raising dead dreams, and and dead relationships. Uh, yeah, do you detect any equivocation whatsoever regarding the definition of the word dead here, or what is yeah. when resurrection power comes? That's right. It doesn't just touch a physical body. That's it can. <laughs> This is funny. Touch right. How about things. a dead church getting raised Come on. up? Come, Come on. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about raising dead people. You know, dead churches and and dead relationships. Well, we have a word in the scripture that yes. um, commissions us to this. And Matthew 10 is a, well, it's an apostolic chapter, right. really. Sure. And I believe James and... You know, maybe you can fill in how you're feeling about this right now. But I feel like we are in a transition from a prophetic season in the body. Yeah, you feel. That's kind of the operative word. I could care less what you feel like. Again, Patricia, you might be suffering from low blood sugar. You know, a Twinkie, an orange, something like that just might clear that right up. Into the apostolic. So even a lot of prophets are becoming very apostolic. That's right. And we're moving from the age. She sounds so postmodern here. She's completely playing with words and meanings. And I mean, is it any wonder why the emergent church and these uh, and the Patricia King gang, uh, whenever I put the two of them on the same program, they sound like they're cut from the same cloth. Age of revelation or a decade of revelation to an era of application. Amen. So we don't just foretell it now. 
Now we do it. You know, it's, that sentence is complete gobbledygook. But, however, I, I kind of figured out one of their, their, their techniques here. If you slow it down and you use polysyllabic words and you kind of emphasize those polysyllabic words. So we went from an era of, of, of revelation to now we're in the spirit of application. It, it, it sounds so profound, at least if you're, you have the education of a two-year-old. Man, and in the prophetic season, there's a lot of seeing vision, proclaiming right. vision. You proclaim what you see, but in the apostolic season, you do the vision. That's absolutely So it's saying right. the same thing. Yeah, but... in the apostolic season, you do the vision. Oh, yeah. So uh, where in the Bible does it talk about this apostolic season again? I just am not familiar with any passage in the scripture that says any such nonsense. Um, in Matthew 10, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples mm -hmm. and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. And to uh, who did he give authority to who, who uh, she's reading here. Jesus summons his disciples and he gave who authority them, not us, them, not me and you, them. He gave them authority every kind of disease and every kind of wow. sickness and then he said now the name of the 12 apostles so all of a sudden once they get this authority they're no longer disciples but they're apostles now yeah they're the sent ones they get sent out then at that point um and then he names them is your name in the list patricia is my name in the list good and um then he commissioned them to go out and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. You mean he didn't just call them, he commissioned them? He commissioned them. Now that's he a different issue. Out. It doesn't mean we're just going to take you through five years of Bible school and then, you know, and six years of uh, practice sessions, but I'm authorizing you. I'm commissioning yeah, you. On. I'm sending you to mm -hmm. go raise the dead. Amen. And it's part of our... <laughs> Our mandate, you know, yeah, a lot of times I find Christians think, okay, well, we, we are commissioned to go yes. preach the gospel. That's right. And we think it's maybe the gospel of salvation or the sure. gospel of the four spiritual laws. Yeah. And the four spiritual laws, by the way, just to clarify, yes. I, I was born again practically in that in that day anyways and god was using it powerfully in fact Absolutely. it was the first evangelism thrust i was That's involved right. in was using four spiritual laws amazing but your principle is is that god gave commission to preaching the gospel but he did it right there and now we're having progressive truth restored and not only revel uh, we're having what restored progressive truth restored oh yeah we don't need the bible anymore we've got new progressive truth being restored but now applications exactly but the point i'm trying to make is yeah. back in those days yeah. we were preaching people's forgiveness of yes. sins in god mm -hmm. so that they could receive jesus as their savior sure. have all their sins forgiven and having a new life that's awesome absolutely absolutely awesome and that's yeah yeah forgive uh, repentance and the forgiveness of sins that's what jesus said to do uh, that look at luke 24 talk about a commissioning um That's awesome to look at lip service to the gospel, but yeah, I could just feel a butt coming. Of course, Calls. there's various ways and expressions and, you know, ways that you can reach the lost. I love all of that. But the gospel of the. Did you hear it? There's the butt. That was the butt. I told you I felt a butt coming. 
yeah, but usually erases the uh, the thing ahead of it. So the forgiveness of sins and salvation, yeah, that's all great. Oh, that's awesome. But uh, w- well, what do you have to replace it with, uh, Patricia? Kingdom yes. is beyond the gospel of, of salvation. Salvation, salvation yes. is included that's in the right. kingdom, exactly. but there's more, such right. as the healing the sick, that's right. raising the dead, casting out devils, and transforming society. Exactly. And it's the good news of the kingdom. Oh, man. You know what's funny? The uh, the Patricia King gang, the emergence, and the purpose-driven folk all sound like they're all in the same camp. Oh, God, the kingdom has come. Yeah. Amen? Mm. So he said, Jesus said to his apostles, to the apostolic company that was now with him, he said, this is, this is what you do under this mandate. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, so go preach saying that. And heal the sick. He didn't even say pray for the sick. He said, heal the sick with this authority that I'm giving you in my name. Raise the Uh, dead, dead. cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, now freely give. Okay, just a real quick question here. Um, I mean, if this is supposedly the normal commonplace thing that we're supposed to be doing, you know, heal the sick, raise the dead, all that kind of stuff. um, Why don't we have the apostles still with us today? I mean, think of it this way. I mean, seriously. I mean... Um, all you need is, you know, a couple of apostles hanging together. And if one of them gets arrested and gets crucified or murdered, you know, as soon as they dump his body, you know, out in the, in, you know, in the dumpster, you just get the other apostle and bam, you know, you just raise him from the dead and you slink off going, (laughs) we pulled a fast one on those guys. (laughs) So when we receive the authority that is in Jesus, We are mandated to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out devils, to cleanse lepers, all of that. Again, pay attention, just context, context, context. We'll clear this right up. Uh, This is Jesus sending the disciples out on a training mission. He calls them apostles. When he sends them, when they come back, they become disciples again, Uh, not apostles. This is not the full apostolic commissioning. The, uh, The true apostolic commissioning, you know, at the end is that in Matthew 28 or Luke 24 and uh, look at the book of Acts and how this all plays out. How many resurrections were there in the book of Acts? Just answer the question. Look it up. If you're not sure, read the whole book and report back to me. How many resurrections were there in the book of Acts? How many dead people got risen from the dead? Is that the right way of putting it? I can think of two offhand. I mean, but I mean, was that the normal part of their ministry? Think about it. And yet so often, even if we can grasp a hold of the healing the sick part, we leave behind the raising the dead. And we have, but still, it's what I call progressive restoration of truth. Mm -hmm. And see, and so the Lord has breathed on, restored to us the preaching of salvation. And it's a part of the gospel of the kingdom. Yes, it is. He's been restoring to us the preaching of healing, not just praying for the sick, as you said, mm-hmm. be healed. <laughs> and you believe we they're healed and they are healed. Yeah. And now we're in another phase of this restoration. And it's literally where the spirit of resurrection is being released. Amen. And- yeah, but don't expect physical bodies to be raised from the dead. No, they're going to be raising dreams and dead relationships. It's really exciting. Now, yeah. I've heard it said that 
Um, if God's going to raise the dead, it has to be a sovereign move. That's one of the things. Like all these other things, you can go and minister these. You can go and cast out devils. You can pray for the cleansing of lepers. You can go and minister to the sick. Right. But the raising of the dead, it's it's different. It's like only can be done by sovereign uh-huh. visitation. But it doesn't say that. It says this is the mandate so of the church. Commission. This is what you're mandated and commissioned to do. Go preach this good news. Go heal the sick and you raise the dead. He didn't say God will raise the dead. He says you raise the dead. You know, it's really true. And you. Oh, boy. Oh, this is a train wreck. You know, and again, recently I had this dream that was showing about passivity entering the church. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that was directly from God himself. I wake up out of the dream and I hear the word, God is at war. See, and he's given us his authority. He's given us keys of the kingdom. But we, he's already done it all on the cross. 2,000 years ago. He he conquered sin, Mm -hmm. death, and Satan, rose from the dead, Send it into heaven, sits at the Father's right hand, Apostles' Creed, and throughout the scriptures. And he had, then he's waiting till his enemies is made a footstool for his yeah. feet. And part of that is going to be, and already is, right. there's a movement that has begun. Ah, so basically it's up to us to uh, take Jesus' enemies and turn them into a footstool so Jesus can prop his feet up and say, Hey, thanks, that was great. Now I can come back. Oh, man, this is just loony anyway um we're gonna take our second break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions i'm sure you might want to chime in after hearing that you can email me my email address is um talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian i'm i'm gonna go um experience some progressive restoration of revelation and if you want to tweet me on twitter it's my name there fire christian we'll be right back we don't need to rethink christianity we need to rediscover it you're listening to fighting for the faith This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. 
That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Good sermon review coming up today from Phil Johnson. Now, one of the reasons I uh, picked this one, well, two reasons. One, Phil Johnson helps keep me sane, to, to which I am truly thankful for him for that. Number two, this is an interesting sermon in this sense. Phil Johnson does something a little bit out of character for uh, his normal preaching, but we'll talk about that here in a second here. Let's cue up the good sermon music here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's uh, sermon comes to us via the Grace Pulpit. Uh, Grace Life Pulpit uh, Ministry. Phil Johnson is the pastor preaching, and the name of the sermon is The Foolishness of Preaching the Gospel. And as I was uh, just noting, one of the reasons I picked it is due to the fact that Phil Johnson, in this sermon, he talks a lot about himself. Now, before you just automatically go, well, why aren't you playing the bad version of the good, the bad, the ugly? Well, listen, there's, there's a right way and a wrong way to preach about yourself in a sermon. We heard the wrong way yesterday from Perry Noble. You're going to hear the right way in this sermon. Okay. And kind of an evangelical style, Phil Johnson's going to give us his testimony. 
what you're going to hear is that, well, Phil Johnson's not the solution. He's the problem. Just like you, just like me. And you're going to hear the gospel. You know, the biblical gospel, Christ crucified for our sins. And not only that, this sermon is very timely because there's a lot of political upheaval in the United States and around the world right now. I feel for our brothers and sisters in Greece and in Germany. And even in France, the euro is collapsing. The the future is uncertain. A lot of political turmoil right now. The solution that we need is really not going to be found in political solutions. We need Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Anyway, let me uh, kill that music here. I love that music. Okay, so without any further ado, here is uh, Phil Johnson, uh, The Foolishness of Preaching the Gospel. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to look this morning at a single verse from this chapter. 1 Corinthians, I, <laughs> I got to chime in. Just, he's going to preach on one verse, trust me. He's going to preach on more than that. But <laughs> I, normally, see, I'm t- telling you, so there's certain things that, you know, that normally would set me off, but you've got to hear the sermon. You, you, I'm telling you. Let's <laughs> He's going to talk a lot about himself, and he's preaching from one verse. I mean, normally this would be just red flag, red flag. Ah, oh, we got a problem here. No, just listen, listen, listen. One twenty-one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That verse is a particular favorite of mine because it was instrumental in my conversion. And so this morning, I'm going to pretty much start by giving you a few words of personal testimony. I want to tell you how I came to know the Lord and why this text was so instrumental in that. It's a, it's a text that on the face of it is quite confusing because it refers to what we preach as folly and contrasts it with the wisdom of this world. And I remember the first time I ever read this, I was totally confused by it and yet rebuked by it. And such is the power of the Word of God. Before I give you my testimony about that, I want to start by taking note of the context of this verse. This, of course, is the first of Paul's two inspired epistles to that troubled church in Corinth, that sort of notoriously messed up church, one of the worst problems you see in all of New Testament ecclesiology, really, until you get to the letters of Christ to the church in the book of Revelation, and you find out there were apparently a lot of churches in the early church that were messed up, which is a whole lot like it is today, isn't it? This- right on. Exactly. Nothing has changed. <laughs> Yeah, you want to hear some you want to hear some very uh, blunt words spoken to uh messed up churches. Read the opening epistles from Jesus Christ to the <laughs> to the different churches there in the book of Revelation and uh hear what Jesus has to say to them. Forget the apostle Paul, listen to what Jesus says. It was a troubled church. They had a vast Now that could be taken out of context. Um don't forget the Apostle Paul, but I mean, in comparison, yeah, you, you think Paul's bad, I mean, and blunt. Wait till you hear what Jesus says. Read the opening chapters to the book of Revelation. Catalog of serious problems. And we've talked about the problems in Corinth many times before, so there's no need for me to go through it in detail here. But remember that 
there was a wide array of many problems, including division in the church, serious sin in their midst. A man was fornicating with his father's wife, and I don't know if that was his mother or his stepmother, but Paul said it was a sin so, so shocking that even the Gentiles in Corinth were shocked by it, and Corinth was known for its debauchery, so the, the idea that someone in the church could shock the secular culture of Corinth with their sin gives you an idea how gross this sin was and how public it was. There were people out of control in their corporate gatherings with drunkenness, gluttony, competition over their charismatic gifting, everyone claiming to have a gift that was more spectacular than the last guy. There was doctrinal confusion, including apparently some serious heresy. Someone in Corinth was evidently denying the resurrection of Christ. So Paul devotes a whole chapter to correcting that in 1 Corinthians 15. You had women challenging the authority of their husbands and, and wanting to turn the order of marriage on its head. Church members were suing one another in secular courts. In short, this was a 21st century style church. And Paul writes this epistle to address that baffling assortment of very serious problems. Lots of church planters in a situation like this would simply give up in despair, close the church, write those people off as a nest of false converts and walk away, but not Paul. He poured his life into his people, and the Corinthians seem not to have even appreciated that about Paul because he had to write a second epistle and deal with people who were attacking him. But Paul had poured his life into these people, and that's what he does in this epistle. And his willingness to do that is the thing that made his ministry so effective. And another thing I love about the Apostle Paul is that his answer to every one of these problems ultimately gets back to the gospel in one way or another. He starts this epistle with the gospel. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's everything in that short passage. The doctrine of justification, a word about their spiritual gifts, a promise of the second coming of Christ, and the whole gospel is implied and, in fact, asserted there. And verse 30 is one of my favorite one-verse summaries of the gospel with a Calvinistic emphasis. Because of him, he says, that is because of God. Calvinistic. <clears throat> Phil, <clears throat> listen, dude. Love you. You keep me sane. Paul wasn't a Calvinist because <laughs> Calvin wasn't around there. If anything, you can make the case that Calvin was a Paulist. Yeah, it just, you know, <sighs> just want to point that out. God, in other words, because of God's sovereign election and calling, you are in Christ Jesus who became unto us wisdom from God righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And so this is all about the gospel, and so is our verse, as you are going to see. And Paul ends this epistle with the gospel as well. At the beginning of chapter 15, he gives a clear and systematic summary of the historical facts of the gospel. 
And then he spends that entire chapter showing why the bodily resurrection of Christ is the linchpin of gospel truth. We studied 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 here not long ago. I think it was sometime last year. And you can listen to that sermon if you want to review that passage because it's instructive for the the stress Paul puts on the gospel and the truth of it and the importance of it. But the point is, this whole epistle keeps that steady focus on gospel truth throughout. And that is exactly what Paul is defending in the verse we're looking at this morning. Chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That phrase, what we preach, is of course a reference to the gospel. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. And verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so, in a way, this whole epistle is a great gospel tract. And although I think many, maybe most people would probably say that the gospel of John or the book of Romans would be the best simple gospel presentation in the New Testament, if you just want to hand a book to an unbeliever and say, read this passage of Scripture, you'd usually go for the Gospel of John or maybe the book of Romans. But I have always thought of 1 Corinthians that way because it was a simple reading of this epistle that opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel and brought me to salvation in Christ. And if you will indulge me for a moment this morning, I want to tell you how that came about. I have mentioned several times here that I grew up going to Sunday school every Sunday But it was a liberal church where the Bible was not believed and the gospel was not taught. And I don't remember ever hearing all my life for 17 years, Sunday after Sunday in church, I never heard that I needed to be born again. I can't recall that anyone in our church ever encouraged me to think of myself as a sinner in need of divine grace. Well, except for my mother. I think she understood perfectly that I was a sinner in need of divine grace, and she did remind me of that often. But the message that came through from the pulpit of our church and from my Sunday school teachers was exactly the opposite. They told me, you're basically good. You can make whatever you choose to make of yourself. And if you try reasonably hard and do reasonably well, you'll go to heaven. you got nothing to worry about. God loves you. And he loves you just the way you are. And that's what I grew up believing. And I love myself because, after all, if God loved me, I must be pretty good. Now, in our church, no one ever spoke about being saved or being born again. In fact, I always thought, I heard that expression, of course. You know, you you, you see signs around the city even that say, Jesus saves. And... I always thought that was something only derelicts and Baptists and other kinds of thoroughly debased sinners needed, you know? No one ever talked about getting saved in our church. It would not have even made sense to talk like that because we were constantly being taught that humanity, all of humanity is basically good and we all have a spark of divinity in us and we were told that Christianity is all about letting your intrinsic goodness overcome all the evil in the world. The evil's out there. It's not in here. And, of course, that is a complete and total lie. But nevertheless, I grew up in a church environment, and I thought I was a Christian just because I had been born into a Christian family and I went to church. 
And I have to say that I didn't think being a Christian was really very important because I'd been taught to believe that everyone who was basically a good and ethical person would go to heaven, even if they were Buddhists or Mormons or whatever. And that's how I came into my early adulthood, thinking that if I just didn't sin too badly, and by that I mean I needed to abstain from mass murder or anything that would have put me in prison for life, if I just avoid those things, as long as I steer clear of notorious transgressions, God would let me into heaven when I died. He would welcome me there because, after all, he loves me so much, almost as much as I loved myself. And I was cultivating the spirit of a Pharisee, that Pharisee who went down to the temple to pray and thank God that he was not a sinner like the poor tax collector over yonder, you know? I believed, I really believed, that if I could just be better than most people, if I could live a conscientious life, if I could do something anything to make the world a better place or to make myself a better person, that would be enough to earn me a place in heaven. And the passion of my life was politics. I started high school in August of 1968. That was the same month of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And for those of you who remember that era, it was a turbulent time. There were anti-war protests on every college campus in America. Those were at their peak. And students on college campuses were protesting everything, including authority itself, rather than going to classes. Boy, I tell you, the more things change, the more they stay the same. They were challenging authority itself. Well, now that authority is being challenged in, the, in churches with the emergence challenging the authority of the Bible. Hmm. Interesting. Let's continue. And that year, a group of radical student leaders conspired to disrupt the Democratic Convention in Chicago, and it resulted in some of the ugliest riots Chicago has ever seen. And it was all played out live on television. I watched it all, and that episode made me begin to realize the moral bankruptcy of the politics of my generation. And two months after I started high school, Richard Nixon was elected president. And I actually attended his inauguration in January of 1969 because a band I played in was chosen to march in the inaugural parade. And during that trip to Washington, I saw some of that student violence up close, too close for comfort. I remember I was standing on the mall, that great strip of park space that runs down the center of Washington one day. It was actually the day before the inauguration. And I heard a commotion, and I looked up, and this, this massive scrum of hippies, angry hippies, were running my direction with a handful of mounted policemen chasing them, coming up the mall, swinging their clubs like they were playing polo with rioting hippies. And they were whacking pretty much indiscriminately. And I had to run inside one of the Smithsonian buildings to keep from getting my skull cracked. And it was clear to me that the leftist agenda was a dead-end street morally, socially, economically. And so I became intensely interested in conservative politics. That was an era when practically everybody else in my generation was into rock music and rebellion and radicalism of all kinds. But I turned my back on all of that, and I went exactly the opposite direction. In fact, I've seen pictures of Don Green from that era or shortly. I mean, he, he was one of these long-haired hippie types, you know? <laughs> I was the opposite. 
I embraced right-wing politics and started listening to classical music, and I was convinced that there was a way to help make the world a better place, and this was a way I could make myself a better person. At least I thought I'd be better than those people who were rioting and rebelling and protesting every kind of authority. And during those years I spent in high school, the moral decline of society became only more and more obvious. The summer of 1969 featured Woodstock on the East Coast and the Manson family murders here in Southern California. And then in 1970, rock stars started dropping dead from drug overdoses. Jimi Hendrix died in September of that year, and Janis Joplin died just a few weeks later. Jim Morrison died a few months after that. And all three of them were known for living horrible lives of promiscuity and drug abuse. And that's what they stood for. They were icons of the student rebellion and the radical left, They had gained incredible fame and influence, and they all died suddenly and tragically because they lived such promiscuous lives. And it seemed to me that the very thing they stood for was what killed them, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That kind of self-destruction was the direction my whole generation seemed to be headed, and I saw that. And I was more convinced than ever that the culture and the politics of my generation were all wrong. It was obvious to me, even if nobody else could see it, that our whole culture was in serious moral decline. We're still reaping the fruits of that, and in fact, it's getting worse today. But I was sure that the way to turn it around was by lobbying for legislation that reflected family values, conservative principles, right-wing politics, and in fact, I thought the only possible solution for what ailed America was conservative politics. And I would have made a great leader in the religious right, but I was about a decade and a half ahead of my time. And during those years in high school, as I became more and more involved in conservative political causes, I became less and less involved in the church. I was already disillusioned with the denomination I grew up in because that denomination was openly supporting several left-wing political causes. Besides that, it was obvious that our pastor and my Sunday school teachers didn't even believe the Bible. And so I decided, you know, there's no point in subjecting myself to this humanistic philosophy and leftist politics every Sunday in church, and I virtually stopped going to church. Maybe I shouldn't even say virtually. I stopped going to church. But I still considered myself a Christian, and I thought of myself as a reasonably religious person. The truth is, conservative politics had become my religion. I thought of God as the ultimate political conservative, and I was convinced he approved of me because of my political views. I believed I had found the way I could earn God's favor, and it was by promoting a political agenda that was based on moral issues. And I decided what I wanted to do with my life when I grew up was I wanted to become a newspaper columnist like William F. Buckley, And that goal began to dominate everything I did, what I read, what I watched on television, and who I spent my time with. And I ought to say that during those years, I had several close friends who were Christians. I lived just a few blocks away, literally, from the headquarters of Billy James Hargis, who was a radio evangelist known for right-wing politics and anti-communism. And I had at least one friend whose father worked in that organization, He shared my political views, and so we became good friends. 
Another friend of mine was the son of a Pentecostal faith-healing evangelist, and he was also just as involved as I was in politics. And in fact, one political organization I joined, at least half the members were evangelical Christians. They were the very same people who, within a few years, would organize the Christian right, the religious right. And I firmly believed that by working for political causes, I was doing God's will. I was absolutely convinced that if we could just elect a president like Ronald Reagan, that would save America from moral and spiritual decline. And I devoted my life to that cause. America's problem was a political problem, I thought. And so the solution must be a political solution. Now, I need to stress this. I did not know the Lord in those years. I didn't really even think about the Lord in those years. I called myself a Christian. But there was nothing Christian about me, and not one of my evangelical friends ever bothered to share the gospel with me. We discussed politics, and God's name often entered into our discussions, but not one of them ever gave me the gospel or even asked if I had trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Wow. Sure, the same thing would happen today. And it should have been obvious from my private lifestyle that I didn't. I was as lost as the radicals we hated. But my Christian friends thought I was okay because my political views were sound. And then about a month before I graduated from high school, something happened that made me reevaluate everything. It was just a, a small incident, very casual thing. On the way home from school one day, I gave a ride to a fellow who was not a close friend, but a guy who had been friendly to me, and he happened to be a solid Christian. And he was not one of my politically active friends, but just a guy I knew from high school. And this guy's name was Rob Holtzinger, and I frankly didn't think he was all that bright. He was a nice guy and all, but he didn't understand politics. And so I usually didn't spend a lot of time talking to him. But on that day, I gave him a ride. And on the way home, he, I had another friend in the car. We were talking politics, and he interrupted this political discussion. And he said, you know, Johnson, there are more important things in life than politics. And I I stopped, and I looked at him like, are you crazy? I said, what do you mean? What could possibly be more important than politics? And he said, well, the gospel, for one thing. If you really want to make a difference in the world, why don't you preach the gospel? He, He assumed I was a Christian because I professed to be. And I said, politics is the gospel. The only hope for saving this nation is for good people to get enough political clout to stop the moral decline. And he said, that's not true. The gospel isn't about politics. It's a message about Christ and how he forgives sin and changes people's hearts. And that's the only thing that can really help a culture like ours. And I scoffed at that, and I tried to blow him off. I I told him he was just naive, that he was talking spiritual mumbo-jumbo and I wasn't about to give up hardcore politics for a lot of pious-sounding, pie-in-the-sky sentimentality. But he persisted with me. He said, I frankly don't think God cares about your politics. You need to get your priorities straight. He said, it's going to take more than political clout to turn our society around. God's answer to our society's problem is the gospel, not a political strategy. And I said, Holtzinger, you don't even know what you're talking about. Jesus is a politician. He's going to come back and rule the world, right? What could be more political than that? And Holtzinger said, well, sure, he's going to rule the world. And I said, there you go. 
And that was the end of the discussion. I figured I won the argument. He was quiet, Holtzinger was, the rest of the way home, and my other friend and I just went on talking politics. But what he said stuck in my mind, and I couldn't get it out. And later that night at bedtime, I was feeling depressed and a little bit melancholy. And if you know me, that's unusual for me. But I'm not even sure why. I remember I had done something dastardly that evening. I don't remember what it was. I think I said something unkind to my sister or or something like that. It wasn't a big thing, but I was feeling guilty and struggling with the weight of this guilt and not able to make sense of it because I was such a good person. Why would I feel guilty? And something about that conversation with Holtzinger had left me feeling like a complete pagan, and I hated that feeling. And I was having a hard time getting to sleep, and so I decided I'm going to do something spiritual. So I decided to read my Bible. Now, that's something I'd never really done. I owned a Bible, but I never really used it. In fact, I had a Bible that had been given to me, I think, on my 12th birthday. Maybe it was my 10th birthday. And it looked brand new. I don't think it it was one of those that had a zipper that closes it. And the zipper was so unused to being used that it was kind of hard to get it open. And, you know, if I ever read the Bible at all in the Methodist church, it was just a verse or two at a time. And and I would use the Bible almost like a Ouija board or, or tarot cards or something. I'd let it fall open at random, and I would just read whatever verse my eyes happened to light on, and I would try to find some mystical message from God for me in whatever passage I read but I never read more than a verse or two at a time. And so I I did that. I picked up my Bible and wrestled the zipper open and flopped it open. And it opened that night to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the first page of the epistle. And for some reason, it occurred to me that, you know what, if I could do penance and please God or make myself feel spiritual by reading a verse or two of Scripture, I could gain a whole lot of spiritual merit if I just read the whole book. And so I counted up the pages. I looked at it first. And it seemed a bit longish to me, but I thought, you know what? I'll read as much as I can. I decided I'm going to read as much of 1 Corinthians as I can and feel really spiritual by the time I'm done. The honest truth is, if I just read two complete pages, that probably would have been more of the Bible than I had ever in my life read at one sitting. And so I started reading. And I think it's the first time in my life I ever looked at the Bible and read it to gain understanding of what it was saying. I decided I'm going to start at verse 1 and comprehend what this epistle is saying. And by the time I got to verse 19, I was absolutely shocked at what it said. Look at verse 18 and follow with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And when I read that, My mind instantly went back to what my friend Rob Holtzinger had said to me earlier that day. You know, there are more important things in life than politics. God's answer to our society's problem is the gospel, not a political strategy. And the echo of that conversation was still ringing in my ears. I had won the argument with Rob Holtzinger. I knew I wasn't going to win an argument with God. And what shocked me the most about this passage is the absolute contempt 
God has for the wisdom of this world. I had always thought that if I studied the best of this world's wisdom, if I fought for the highest of political principles, if I cultivated my knowledge of the world's best philosophies, and if I appreciated the finest things in art and music and culture, God would surely be pleased with that. But in verse 19, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the more I read, the more my political views crumbled, my worldview. Verse 27, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I kept reading, and verses like that just seemed to jump out at me, and and it was like the Bible was playing whack-a-mole with my head, you know? I was being pummeled by these verses. Chapter 2, verse 5, Your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, that none of the political leaders of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And chapter 3, verse 18, this was the one that utterly did me in. Let no one deceive himself, for if any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. And when I finished all of that, I knew I was in trouble. Everything in my life that I had ever hoped would be pleasing to God, he dismissed it all as mere foolishness. It devastated me. I mean, I could understand if God hated the foolish things of this world. It would have made perfect sense to me if God said he hated everything that is vile and unsophisticated about the world. But as I read these opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, it suddenly became clear to me that it wasn't just the bad stuff in my life that God hated. What he hated most of all about me were the very things I thought were the best things about me. The things I. Oh, that is such an important point. Let me back this up. Listen, the trip to Christianity isn't a trip from vice to virtue, it's a trip from virtue to the cross. You've got to understand this. It, it, it's the thing that's really going to damn you are your good works. You think you're pulling it off. You ain't. Listen to this. This is so profound and great. Good point, Phil. That I had ever hoped would be pleasing to God, he dismissed it all as mere foolishness. It devastated me. I mean, I could understand if God hated the foolish things of this world. It would have made perfect sense to me if God said he hated everything that is vile and unsophisticated about the world. 
But as I read these opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, it suddenly became clear to me that it wasn't just the bad stuff in my life that God hated. What he hated most of all about me were the very things I thought were the best things about me, the things I was tempted to boast in. According to 1 Corinthians 3.18, if I really wanted to be wise, I needed to become a fool for Christ's sake. And I suddenly began to feel very lost and sinful. I, was, I remember this like it was yesterday, lying in bed there reading the Bible and just in a cold sweat, realizing I was lost. And if I died before morning, I was going to go to hell. And that was the very thing God used to draw me to Christ as Savior. I kept reading until I just couldn't read anymore. I finished at least 12 chapters that night. And by the time I finished reading those first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians, my heart had yielded to Christ's lordship, and I was a believer. And that was just the beginning. The very next day, I, I went to a bookstore in the mall because I wanted to get a translation of the Bible I could understand better. And so I'm going to this bookstore, and someone gave me a gospel tract. It was the first time in my life anybody had ever given me a gospel tract. And so I took it home and I read it carefully, and it was a little tract that outlined the gospel and, and the principle of justification by faith with absolute clarity. And then later that same day, a friend called and invited me to a gospel crusade where I heard a preacher preach on the crucifixion. And by the end of that week, all of the pieces of the puzzle had sort of fallen in place for me. For the first time in my life, I knew very well what it was to be a Christian, and for the first time in my life, I understood the life-changing power of the gospel. That literally overnight, the gospel became more important to me than politics. I completely lost my passion for politics. Ever since that day, although I, I still have an interest in the political process, I have absolutely no enthusiasm for it although I still have a lot of sympathy for, the most, for most of the conservative political ideas, I have no confidence whatsoever in politicians or the political process. I have never seen a political ideology truly change society for good. Never. And I can tell you definitively from both my personal experience and on the authority of God's Word that this world's wisdom offers no redemption from sin. And I'm absolutely convinced that political activism offers no answer whatsoever for the spiritual problems of our society. That's not the way ahead. The only effective answer to the evils of this present age is the gospel message. The Apostle Paul says so clearly in 1 Corinthians 1.21, and that's the verse I want to look at carefully this morning. 1 Corinthians 1.21, I'll read it one more time. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And I want you to notice three things in that verse. First, there is a worldly wisdom that can never save. Second, there's a heavenly foolishness that does save. And third, there's a divine strategy that requires us to keep worldly wisdom and the foolishness of the gospel totally distinct. And let's look at these one at a time in order, in case you didn't get them down because I went fast. I'll give them to you slowly. Number one, there's a worldly wisdom that can never save. 
a worldly wisdom that can never save. There's a phrase in the middle of this verse that just jumped out at me the first time I read it. The world did not know God through wisdom. It's not possible to find God through the pursuit of worldly wisdom. Philosophy, politics, arts and aesthetics, and every other kind of worldly wisdom is utterly devoid of any power to transform a sinner into a saint. There is only one thing that can give a sinner a new heart, and that is spiritual regeneration, the new birth, and the instrument of the new birth is the Word of God. According to 1 Peter 1.23, we are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And Jesus told His disciples in John 15, verse 3, you are clean because of the Word I have spoken to you, only the Word of God. And specifically, the gospel message has the power to transform people's hearts and change them at the very core of who they are. Only God's Word can do that. And the gospel message is the summary of the power that's in the Word of God to do that. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. And that is why the Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, even though the gospel seems foolish and naive to people who are steeped in the wisdom of this world. Educational programs, legislative policies, political agendas, things like that can never turn sinners into good people. All of those things are worldly wisdom, and they are a carnal and utterly ineffectual strategy for reforming a society like ours that is in love with sin. And in fact, if righteousness could be brought about by legislation, the gospel would be superfluous. Paul said that very thing in Galatians 2.21. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And Galatians 3.21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But neither society nor individuals can be redeemed by worldly wisdom. And Christians are seriously deluded if they think the most important battles for righteousness are being waged in the arenas of politics or education or the arts. Amen. Right. Preach the gospel. Those are the realms of worldly wisdom, and it is a wisdom that never can save. Why? Because according to Luke 10.21, God has hidden these things, the truths of the gospel. He's hidden them from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, for such was his gracious will. If saving truth were something to be found through worldly wisdom, then only the wise could be saved. But God has chosen to make the truth simple, even foolish-sounding, so that even the simple-minded can grasp it. And furthermore, God forbids us to use fleshly weapons and worldly strategies to enforce moral standards on people. In Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, now he's suddenly talking in the political realm, these people who rule the Gentiles, Gentile politicians, lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Worldly wisdom and political strategies cannot save either society or individuals. But moving to our second point, there is one method God has chosen by which to make the maximum impact on society by reaching individuals. Look at our verse again, 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so we'll call this, number two, the heavenly foolishness that does save. There's a heavenly foolishness that does save. Notice this statement. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, that's a bit of an ambiguous statement in the original Greek. It can be taken in two ways. It might mean that even though preaching seems like a foolish strategy, and trust me, it was as foolish in Paul's time as it is now, people think, well, street preaching and and public proclamation of the gospel, those things are passe because our culture doesn't like that. Paul's culture didn't like it either. But it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. So this could simply mean that even though preaching is, seems like a foolish strategy, that's the strategy God chose. That's what the King James Version says. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to say, right, the foolishness of preaching, not your purpose-driven methods. None of that stuff grows the kingdom of God. It's the foolishness of preaching. Oh, this is so good. Save those who believe. That refers to preaching itself as the strategy God chose. But I think this actually is saying something slightly different. Both idiomatically and contextually, it makes more sense to interpret it the way it's translated. I read you the ESV at first. Most of the modern versions say something like this. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So, in other words, it's not just the strategy of preaching that seems foolish to human wisdom. It is the message itself. Worldly wisdom deems the gospel itself to be utterly foolish. The gospel is a message that seems foolish and naive to the unregenerate mind. certainly seemed foolish and naive to me when Rob Holtzinger said it. But this supposed foolishness is actually the wisdom of God, which is wiser than men. And therefore, the preaching of the gospel is the most potent weapon we could ever unleash against the sins of our society. The only thing that can give life to a spiritually dead heart is the message of the gospel, and which is a message the unregenerate will always and invariably deem foolishness until the Lord opens their hearts to receive it. Now, notice this. Paul is directly arguing against the mindset that prevails in most of contemporary evangelicalism. It's as if he has the 21st century church in mind, and he's trying to correct the way we think. Most evangelicals today think we need to take opinion polls and do surveys to see what people want, and then adapt our ministry so that we're meeting the felt needs of worldly people. That's the whole philosophy behind most of the modern megachurches in America. I'm happy to say our church is an exception, but the prevailing wisdom being taught in seminaries and church growth seminars today 
is this. If you want to plant a church in a neighborhood, you have to canvas the neighborhood to find out people's tastes, find out what they want in a religious experience, and then offer them what they are asking for. You know, tailor the music and the style of worship and even the subjects you preach about so that as nearly as possible you are giving people what they want. Now, there's no question that the give people what they want approach can be effective in drawing huge crowds. You see that in these megachurches today. But is it effective in the long term? Is it truly effective in reaching people for Christ so that people's lives are genuinely transformed and they truly live for Christ? And the answer to that is clearly no. In fact, Bill Hybels, who engineered one of the largest megachurches that follows that give-people-what-they-want philosophy, admitted two years ago that the strategy is an utter failure when it comes to producing disciples. Why? Because it's not a biblical strategy. It is precisely the thing Paul says not to do. In fact, this idea of tickling, itching ears giving people what they want is exactly what Paul said false teachers would do. Look at verse 22, and let's look at Paul's strategy. It's almost, it seems by postmodern standards, perverse, like Paul is trying to be here a troublemaker. Verse 22, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Okay, if we follow the strategy recommended by modern church growth experts, what should we do? We should give the Jews a sign and preach wisdom to the Greeks. That is the very approach most people today try to follow. Even if they don't consciously and deliberately abandon the gospel, they will often try to mold it and shape it so that it sounds like wisdom to people who are seeking a message with some philosophical sophistication. But notice what the Apostle Paul says, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now think about what he's saying there. The Jews want a sign, we give them a stumbling block. The Greeks want wisdom, we give them foolishness. The opposite of what they want. Why is this? Did Paul just want to be perverse? Did he just want to make people angry? No. Keep reading. Verse 24. But to those who are called, that is the elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the gospel is the greatest sign of all, and it is the greatest wisdom to those who are called. The elect see it, even if nobody else does. And trust me, nobody else does. It is the power of God, the gospel, the power of God, more potent than any cosmic sign. And it is the wisdom of God, wise enough to make all the wisdom of this world seem like mere foolishness by comparison. But it is only one class of people who recognize the power and the wisdom of God. Those who are called, the elect. They are the ones who will respond to the gospel if it's rightly preached. But they will respond. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6, 37. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. John 10, 27. Those who are called effectually by the Holy Spirit will 
recognize the wisdom and power of God in the gospel. And that's why we must proclaim this message, not another message. We must proclaim the gospel and not obscure it with our political rhetoric or our philosophical arguments or our comedy routines or entertainment packages or any other useless form of earthly wisdom. What seems like mere foolishness to the worldly mind is actually the only thing that can reach sinners and turn their hearts to Christ because it is the wisdom and power of God. And verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that's why the gospel is superior to any political strategy or philosophical argument when it comes to reaching people and lifting them out of the bondage of sin. And so we have the worldly wisdom that can never save, the heavenly foolishness that does save, and now let's move to the third point, and I want to show you the divine strategy that requires us to keep worldly wisdom and the foolishness of the gospel totally distinct. Point number three, the divine strategy that requires us to keep these two things separate. Notice our verse. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, preaching the gospel is God's chosen strategy for salvation. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That is God's strategy. And we're not permitted to modify it. But many people today have modified it, and they are modifying it. And some have even made the same mistake I made before I was a Christian, thinking that the solution to society's moral decline is a political agenda. And they've thrown all their energies and resources into trying to redeem society through politics. And others think the key to reaching people is some form of contextualization, where the preacher morphs the gospel message into something the world will like wise-sounding philosophical reasoning, nice-sounding moral platitudes, cool-sounding postmodern jargon, hip-sounding music, or whatever. And all of that is a distraction from the simple truth of the gospel, and to whatever degree the preacher buries the gospel message under pragmatic methodologies like those, he actually diminishes the power of the message he is called to proclaim even if tactics like those draw bigger crowds. It can't possibly have the same powerful effect as the undiluted gospel preached plainly and straightforwardly. And in fact, I'm convinced that tactics like those have multiplied false converts in the church, and that is one of the main reasons the church today is in such a mess. The church Paul wrote these words to was likewise messed up, polluted with worldly values, pagan ideas, carnal sinfulness. And there is one solution to that. It's the gospel, the message of the cross, the truth that Christ died for our sins and rose again for our justification. That is the truth we must believe, the hope we must cling to, the message we must proclaim and not only to our unregenerate neighbors, but also to each other. 
not with eloquent words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, for the gospel is the power of God. It may seem like folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let that be the message of our lips and our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are poor, needy sinners without merit of our own, with absolutely nothing to boast about. Apart from Christ, we have nothing but our sin and our rebellion. But the gospel reminds us that Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We pray, Lord, that you will unleash the power of that gospel in our lives. May it be the theme of all of our thoughts. May it be the point of our life message. May it be the good news our neighbors hear in what we say and the truth they see embodied in how we live. And may we who have nothing to boast about learn to boast in the Lord so that you might be glorified above all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ah, sound words, and he's absolutely right. Preaching the gospel is the strategy. These purpose-driven guys have it all wrong. And they're filling buildings, but are they really growing the kingdom of God? If faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, uh, then no, they're not. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says uh, donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 to Fighting for the Faith every month. And uh, when, if you'd like to fill in the blank as to how much you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.